12. Mike, have you decided what psalm you're going to do? So next Thursday, uh, Mike will be doing Psalm 4 and 5. And um, yeah, and then John Wiley is actually going to teach, um, not this Sunday, but the next Sunday. So, and I don't know what he's teaching. So that should make all of us nervous. <laughs> all right, well, David says, To the chief musician, on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord, I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that David has very similar feelings to my own and often observed the world around him um, with disparity. And of course, he always returns his gaze to you so that um, the truth would dawn upon his heart and mind and he could really regain his sanity. And um, so, Lord, I pray that we could consider these things and learn and be encouraged. So thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Notice any similarities with our culture in that chapter? Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at verse one again. Uh, David cries out. He says, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Now, I don't know about you, but... uh, I have felt this same kind of disparity a number of times, uh, and I would say mostly over about the last 10 years on and off, and it has to do with uh, the death of so many of the great defenders of the faith. That's one of the things that has, um, you know, drawn me into that. Um, I remember when um, Norman Geisler passed away. Uh, I remember when R.C. Sproul passed away, and those are fairly recent. Um, And then... um, We were hoping to have Wayne Grudem come. Uh, He hasn't passed away, but his Parkinson's has gotten so severe that he's no longer traveling. And um, so all that stuff, it it bothers me deeply that uh, so many great men who have defended the faith and done it very well with integrity uh, have gone on to be with the Lord. Um, More recently, what has been so I'm so disturbed in my heart over is is how quickly and how much of the culture the church has embraced. Uh, And I would actually say that nothing concerns me more uh, than that. And then as we see um, uh, just the advancement of secularism uh, growing in our culture so, so quickly. Now, I know we've mentioned this before that, you know, we have this idea that we have a, there's um, spiritual ministry jobs and there's secular jobs as if, Uh, When a Christian works at his job, it's secular. It's not. Uh, Wherever you work, it is sacred. Um, Secular means of this world. 
Uh, it means that which is caught up into the system of this world as it's governed by the devil. Uh, Paul calls him the god of this age, the god of this world, and uh, this, that's his system. We're in the world, Jesus says, but we're not to be of the things of the world. And so, but when a Christian works at Walmart, of all things, uh, that job then becomes sacred, okay? becomes service to the Lord. So you, none of you better have a secular job. Amen? Uh, you're in the ministry. You're in the kingdom. And uh, that goes with you wherever you go. But the advancement of what is truly secular uh, is, is just growing so quickly. And in response, I've cried out, help, Lord. Who, who is there to stand against the secular tide uh, and, and to come to fight the war uh, for truth? And um, it seems that when, whenever great men are displaced, the vacuum is filled with wicked people. And, um, and that's hard. As the light fades, hope seems to go with it. But at least I think two things uh, are noteworthy here. As First, as God was David's help, he is our own. He's our help as well. And as it was in the days of David, it has been ever since. It has been ever since. And, you know, because, regarding the first one, because it's God's word and his will that is under attack, it is the God of the word that we should appeal to and trust. Okay? If God is not able to defend his own word, he is, he is not a God worth worshiping. I believe that with all my heart. Uh, you know the story of Gideon. And I've always thought about this uh, in the context of um, when Muslims get so angry with people and kill people when they insult the Prophet or Allah, is I, I want to repeat the, the words of, of um, Gideon's father who said to the men of the city, if, if, if Baal is a god, let him defend himself. And uh, if Allah is any god at all, let him defend himself. Because what had happened was uh, God told Gideon to destroy the altar of Baal in the city. And of course, typically, as was typical for Gideon, he was afraid. So he and his servants did it at night. And then in the morning, the men of the city found out that it was uh, Gideon. And they said, bring him out here so that we can kill him. And his dad said, if Baal is a god, let him handle this himself. And uh, you know, if God is not able to defend his own word, he's not a god worth worshiping. He's not a god worth following. But he is the Lord God. He's able to uphold his word and he will judge the wicked. He will, and he has. He has no need of us. Uh, he has chosen to use us, but he needs nothing and no one. And he is more than capable of dealing with the problems among men. And as we look throughout history, uh, he has. He has. Now you think about the world before Christianity, it was a barbaric monstrosity. And then the small little light crossed the borders of Israel into pagan territory and uh, began to transform the world. And that's closing in on us, but as Jesus said, the gates of Hades will never prevail. And, uh, never prevail. And we need to hold on to that. So I suppose there has not been a time since David uh, that David penned these words that someone has not cried out uh, in the same way. There's always been things to worry about. There's always cause to fret. Or has there? Yeah. You know, David may have said this when Samuel the prophet passed away. I mean, for David, that must have been a big deal, a big deal. He seemed to be maybe David's only advocate during that time. But then Gad and Nathan, the two prophets, stood up and took Samuel's place. And then, of course, 
before the nation of Israel, it was Elijah and Elisha. It was Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, Zechariah and Malachi. God was faithful to bring the truth and bring his voice back into the nation, always. Now, if it wasn't Samuel's death that provoked David's desperation, perhaps it was his friend Jonathan. I bring up these possibilities because nobody knows the historical context of the psalm. So uh, your guess is as good as mine. But if it was Jonathan's death that uh, pushed David into such disparity, um, well, uh, Hushai came along, the faithful friend of David, uh, Abithar and Zadok, the priests, uh, Ittai and Barzillai. In fact, you remember as David was fleeing Jerusalem from his son Absalom, he tried to deter Ittai from going with him because Ittai was a foreigner. And he, David was saying, basically, this isn't your fight. Why are you following me? And he said, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. Second Samuel fifteen twenty one. David said, faithful men cease. No, they don't, David. No, they don't. Men of renowned faith and courage always surrounded David because of God's faithfulness to him. There was always a prophet. There was always a priest. There was always a friend. So where one great man falls, another will always rise up, if not 10 of them, if not 10. I was super encouraged. Um, the other day, um, there's a, the largest denomination in the world is, is in upheavals right now over uh, current cultural issues. And uh, one of the, their chief theologians has left. And I, I think I mentioned it to second service. He's a young theologian. I think he's about 35. And, and uh, he was explaining to them as, as they were attacking him in his departure that he said, I have not moved. You have. And God has not moved. And we have departed from him. And, uh, and that's really where it's at. Where, wherever God remains, that's where we should remain no matter uh, how many people uh, go another direction. We should stand firm on God's word and on his truth. So um, Elijah, you know, learned this as well in regard to um, this idea, well, you know, going into disparity, that there's no one left. It's just me. And we know that after his flight to Sinai, he was running from Jezebel. He's there in the cave. And the Lord said to him, what are you doing here? And Elijah said, well, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. 1 Kings 19.10. So Elijah, like David, both men of great faith were shaken by circumstance. So like us, at least in practice, God's faithfulness to us is determined by our circumstances rather than by the truth of his word by reality. And so it is for us to have a reality check. So the Lord responded to Elijah saying, hmm, <laughs> I, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. First Kings 19, 18. Shows you how much a prophet knows. Yeah, God always maintains a remnant of faithful people, not because man is faithful, but because he is. When we're tempted to despair, we should turn to God who never does. Amen? Yeah. Now, just as God will always preserve a remnant, there's always going to be men, at least in this life, who have adverse character, uh, false motives. I think that is going to be 
the strangest thing about the eternal state, because not only will there not be the wicked and unbelieving, um, we will not be so wicked or unbelieving, because we'll be purged of the sin nature. Verse 2, David says, They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. So this interesting combination, idle words, flattering lips, and a double heart. The idleness is, is talking about wickedness. The flattery, literally in the Hebrew, means smooth. They're a smooth speaker. Okay? And the double heart is regarding the false motivation. These are people with evil motives who skillfully communicate falsehood. If I could paraphrase what that uh, statement means today. Uh, it's, it's cunning. And then you take the combination of verse 1 and, and 2, and it indicates that the prevailing culture in Israel at that time was evil. It was evil. There was a shortage, a serious shortage of godly people who were worshiping God, who were influencing the culture for truth. And there was an overabundance of ungodly people who were sowing falsehood throughout the culture. Remind you of something. Yeah. So much like our culture today. But I think that more than ever, um, I was trying to share a little bit with my physical therapist um, about how uh, culture has never moved so rapidly before. Because, especially if, you know, for me coming from Wyoming, uh, culture uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it, it trickled down slowly because there wasn't all of these platforms and outlets to communicate culture so quickly uh, and such a broad scale. And uh, right now, uh, everything is in real time. Everything is moving quickly. So uh, you can be on a camel in Africa or Arabia, and you can be moving along with American Western culture simultaneously. That's never happened before. It's crazy. And I think that the troubling thing now is how all of this, you know, just this being bombarded with these kinds of, this kinds of information has got Christians confused by it. Uh, for example, uh, something that has, uh, I've been um, engaging with so many Christians in, in this whole context, but my example is that I, I can't think of a single news outlet that is healthy. Not a, I can't think of a single one, not one. Not, and I mean not from the right, not from the center, not from the political left. It's, it's not the reporting that is necessarily the problem. It's what is behind all of their communication. It's their motivation. Every outlet is, of course, trying to convince you of a number of uh, things regarding morality and policy. Uh, they want you to reject opposing views. They want you to accept their views. That's normal. But the problem is that all of them, Every single one of them are demonizing those with opposing views in order to get their audience to hate the other side, to despise the people who hold the opposite view. So listen, neither side then is really for the things of God. Both fit into the category of verse 2 of what we're talking about. Yeah, this is the big problem. Conservative outlets are given a free pass by many in the Christian community, even though those outlets sow the same hatred and it's wrong. You know, it is demonic to infect people with hate while using truth as a platform. It's demonic. It's anti-Christian to hate people for holding opposing views. In Christianity, those who have opposing views make up what we call the mission field. And how can we evangelize them if we despise them? That's going to be very difficult. And what we can't forget is our theology, that everyone else in the world does have an opposing view to our own. 
the God of this world, the devil has blinded their eyes from seeing the truth of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. As we understand from Ephesians, sin doesn't just darken the intellect, it makes us crazy, it makes us insane. But instead of despising those people, we should be equipping ourselves with winsome ways to communicate the truth of the gospel with them. We should be praying that God would lift their blindness so that they can see the truth and be saved. And I would say that probably one of the greatest things that softens people with opposing views is not hating them or despising them, but loving them. Yeah. Christ died for them and we despise them. You see a problem with that? Yeah, it's a very strange response from Christians in light of Romans 5 that says, for when we were still without strength, speaking morally, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, the, the morally weak and the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall, reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5, 6 through 10. So when we were at our worst, God gave us his best. And he's called us to respond to those with opposing views in the same way. So let us not be deceived by those who communicate truth, but so hatred. That's dangerous. Be very careful with who we listen to. It does change the way we view people. And I would say, of course, a good alternative or remedy would be to read the Gospels and see how Jesus views people. And his view is the right view. And if your view does not correspond with his, it is the wrong view. It is wrong. Yeah. The people he was hardest on were, on the, were not the common people, but the religious leaders who knew better, and they were a bunch of graceless hypocrites. And they were all about the truth, remember? Yeah, rigidly so. Yeah. We should be careful lest we fall into the same trap. The prevailing voices in our culture, whether truth tellers or not, they're just not motivated by love for those that oppose them. They have no concern for the souls of other people. That makes them idle speakers who really are using a, a skillful rhetoric to win people to their side while demonizing everybody else. If you cling to that, you will become like it. Yep. I meet with people that hate people on the left because their country is so important to them. But uh, they've placed a continent, an ideology over the souls of other people. And I, I think that's very strange. So be watchful, be mindful. Verse three and four, he says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? You know, there's another place in the scriptures like that. You remember when Moses went to Pharaoh, and Moses said, um, and he says, Jehovah has, is commanding you to let his people go. And Pharaoh said, who is Jehovah that I should obey his voice? And then he gave him 10 reasons, <laughs> 10 plagues. <laughs> yeah. Well, verse three is really a prayer request. It's a petition. It should be ours as well. Uh, cunning speech is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. And we should be coming against it with prayer and truth telling. Verse four, though, gets more specific about uh, the kinds of people that, that David is talking about it because it's addressing their motives. 
and it's addressing their beliefs accurately. They, they want to be the instrument of falsehood that will over, overthrow truth and omit God as the su supreme source of truth. That's what they want. Uh, we're dealing with the exact same thing today. The, the prevailing culture uh, with its prophets, in other words, its spokesmen, whether it be college professors, whether it be uh, politicians, social media influencers, or musicians, they intend to overthrow God, objective truth, and morality. Why would they want to do that? Well, if you can get rid of God, it is then for them, yeah, like the Nazis in communist China, to determine what is true and false, what is moral and immoral, who should be rewarded, who should be punished, who gets to live, and who gets to die. Yeah, it's ultimate power for you. And, and until a more powerful force comes along, totalitarianism will prevail. And nothing is more influential to these ends than confident, skillful speech, whether it's written, spoken, or in music. It's the truth. Yeah. And for our young people, the most dangerous place for them to be influenced is on social media. Okay. And it is in the music they listen to. That's where they're currently obtaining their values and their worldview. That's where it's at. That's what's being communicated there. Those platforms do the thinking for them, teaching them to accept all that the world accepts in regard to God and morality. Social media, college campuses, Hollywood, the music industry, those are the indoctrination mills of the enemy. Okay? Our young people need Christ and his word to govern their thinking, to prescribe a worldview. Everything else is a death trap. You know, there's no doubt that the broad acceptance of, of deviant sexual lifestyles is a product of those outlets. They feed the sin nature in people. The recent confusion regarding sexuality and gender was cultivated by these platforms. Uh, grooming children for sex trafficking has been perfected on these platforms. Um, I don't know if you guys keep up with a lot of strange media, but uh, the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir unapologetically have, uh, sing a song right now that they are coming for our children. And they've been attacked for the song, uh, but they have uh, come against all of the, um, the naysayers and said, no, we are coming for your children. We want to indoctrinate them. We want to make sure that everything we believe is accepted by everyone else. It's militant. Yeah, very much so. Uh, the BBC is asking their readership whether or not children should be exposed to pornography. And what had happened was somebody had written in and said that children should be exposed to pornography. There's a huge outcry. And instead of BBC coming against it, they're now asking their readership, uh, what do you think? Now, that would be a great question if your motive was to gauge how wicked your readers were or how lacking the culture is in morality and what work needed to be done to curb it. But that's not their point. That's not their point. They certainly don't want to rebuke all of their readership because that's not good business. But the key in uh, demographics is to figure out what your readers want. And then what do you do? You give it to them. Yeah. It's just complete moral insanity. Uh, about three years ago at a wedding, um, the, uh, one of the people that came to the wedding was, worked in the penal system and was trying to... Uh, tell me how we should be more accepting of pedophiles. We don't understand them. And uh, that, is, that is complete insanity. So if there is no God, or if we refuse to obey his will, we will come up with our own. And that is the prevailing thoughts and morality of our day. So we must pray more. 
we must share the gospel more. And we must be all the more diligent to teach our children the truth and guard their minds from falsehood. Now, by guarding, I do not mean keep them naive, but to educate them about it in light of the truth under our supervision. Amen? They need us. Uh, My children will not have social media while they live in my home. Uh, I will not expose them to that. Verse 5 says, For the oppression of the poor, now this is God speaking, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the, in sa- in the safety for which he yearns. So the, 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 this verse indicates that these idle speakers, those who are uh, trying to overthrow God and his word, are those who are in positions of power and influence with the poor and needy at their mercy. And instead of treating them justly as God's word demands, um, the poor are being oppressed. Now, remember, this is in, the, this is in Israel. This is in the, the theocratic nation where God's word is supposed to govern all of life. And uh, so what we have is people in power are not subject themselves to the word of God. And, uh, and so they are violating it in every way. And it's very interesting when you read through the Torah, the law of God, how frequently he addresses the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and the poor. And he says, if you mess with them, you're going to mess with me. It's very interesting how God is so interested in his covenant people of all social um, strata. And so what it, it appears that those in power are using their position to afflict the poor for personal gain, to maintain power and control, and to get their way in society. Okay, certainly a thing that repeats itself in history uh, and in every society. Uh, yeah, I think it's sad how often the poor, who really just represent those who have less than those in power, are used for personal gain. Really, to advance someone else's cause or from which a, pol- a politician can virtue signal his opponent and deceitfully take the moral high ground uh, for political advantage when they themselves could actually care less about the poor. It's all pretense. And what is so sad is the people that genuinely care about the poor and those in various disparities have no power to affect change, while those in power who have the power to affect change care only for themselves, but they'll gladly use the poor to advance themselves. It's very sick. It's sad that the less fortunate are a necessary component to political success. They're just a means to an end. I hate that. So God says, now I will arise. I will set him in safety for which he yearns. Now, the declaration does not mean that God will immediately do this for the oppressed. If he does mean that, we've got a serious problem. But God allowed his own people to be oppressed for 400 years in Egypt. He did it at the right time and in his way when he delivered them. The Jews were oppressed for 1,900 years uh, during their diaspora throughout Europe and Russia. And it wasn't until after their miseries in the Holocaust that they were relieved of that but then only to go, many of them to go back to the land of Israel, uh, which the UN actually granted them that right. Um, Now they would take it back. But then they were oppressed by Islam. Uh, You guys know much about the the kibbutz in Israel? The kibbutz are a currency-free communities. And uh, I think there's still four active kibbutz in Israel right now. And uh, everybody that lives in the community contributes uh, to the needs of everyone in the community. So 
you go to the grocery store and you just get your groceries and leave. But then if you're a plumber and somebody has plumbing needs, you go and you fix all their plumbing, but there's no currency exchange for it. Well, the history of the kibbutz is very interesting. When Israel came back, when the Jews came back to Israel uh, and they were being raided by uh, Islamic raiders, uh, they had to form these communities to, uh, for, for protection. And they didn't have currency, so they developed this community that was without currency, and the exchange was your work. And they, they developed their own like militias and, and, uh, and all of this stuff, and they began to defend themselves uh, more efficiently. And then, uh, I can't remember the man's name, uh, who I think he was actually a Jewish who was raised in Israel, and he got all of the kibbutz militaries together, and then began to really effectively push back the enemy until, of course, things happened until May 14, 1948, and they declared their independence, of course, and then they went to war, and they've been at war ever since. <laughs> Very interesting history. Yeah, so relief is not necessarily immediate, and if we understand the book of Revelation correct, correctly, they will suffer great oppression until the Lord returns. And um, David recognizes in verse 8, he says, the wicked prowl on every side and that vileness is exalted among men. So there's always going to be oppression until the Lord wraps this up. It will exist until the eternal state. Uh, even last Sunday we had mentioned from Isaiah 11 that even during Christ's reign upon the earth, there's going to be oppression at that time. Uh, but relief for the poor at that time will be dealt with more quickly because we'll have just government at that time. So, but currently, it's here, and it'll be here for quite some time. But God will banish all evil. Another reason to look forward to the final judgment. Verse 6, kind of an interesting transition in the text here, but I think it's important to the overall context. He says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven Times, you guys have heard that verse, I'm sure, many times. Uh, it's you know this the image here of an earthen furnace that repeatedly uh, refines silver illustrates. The, he's using it to illustrate the purity of God's word, that it's without flaw in its entirety. It's absolutely clean. It's without defect. Okay, and then the number seven. It's 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 been it's been purified seven times. It signifies that it's been purged to the point of completion. Purged to the point of completion. How many of you guys have actually ever uh, witnessed the refining of uh, precious metals, gold or silver? Maybe, yeah. If you haven't, there's this thing called YouTube, and uh, you can actually watch it, right? That's not social media. No, no. Uh, there's dangerous stuff on it, um, but there's dangerous stuff at Walmart, too. Uh, and on Pearl Street and other things. But, so, of course, they have to heat it in a pot, uh, something uh, that can withstand the heat. And, uh, and what happens is the less dense material uh, comes to the surface, the hotter that the silver or the gold gets. And then that dross is what they call it, is removed. And uh, they heat it up more. And uh, uh, anything that is impure uh, makes its way to the surface. They do that until there's just no dross. And David is saying that like silver that has been refined in the heat and the fire, uh, God's word 
has been purged of all dross, as it were, all flaws, all defects. And um, it's, it's tried and shown to be inerrant. And I, I love the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. If we do not have inerrancy, we do not have the Word of God. Okay? And this whole doctrine flows logically from what we know about God himself. We've talked about this on Sunday morning, that God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. Titus 1.3, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Uh, he can only be faithful. He can only be faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13, and therefore his word must be true. Every word in the Bible is considered by Jesus to be the word of God, right? He even says that it's, he says that uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he believed that every word in the text of the Bible is God's word. And he said, every one of them is true. John 17, 17. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says that every word of God is pure. That's no contaminants. Psalm 119 Psalm 119, 160 says the entirety of your word is truth. So this means that every subject it addresses, every subject that God addresses in the Bible, it is communicated with perfect accuracy. I was reading a, um, a denominational statement of faith just a week ago, and uh, it said that um, the word of God is accurate as far as spiritual and moral truths are concerned. And we don't want to get into the details of history or science in regard to the scriptures. Um, But those who say that the Bible is only reliable in the context of theology and morality are incorrect. Whatever the Bible addresses, uh, it is 100% accurate. And you cannot separate theology from history. You can't separate theology from science. Did, did, Did Jesus... Was he born in history? Well, when the Bible says that, it better be historically accurate. Uh, Mary uh, was a virgin who conceived and gave birth to a child. Theology is tied into the science of all that. Jesus rose from the dead. That's a historical fact that we must have or we can't be saved, right? If Jesus didn't shed his blood historically, our sins are not forgiven. If Jesus did not rise from the dead historically, we will not rise from the dead. So the scripture is correct in all things it addresses, or it can't be trusted in anything it addresses. Okay, so if it makes a claim, uh, it is absolutely true, and it's the final authority on that particular thing. It may not address every historical fact of world history. It may not address all scientific realities, but whichever ones it does address, it's true. It's true. And I meant to read a couple paragraphs from a philosopher to you, but I left it in my office, so you'll have to wait for that another time. But we can sum up the doctrine of inerrancy this way. Since God cannot err, and because the Bible is God's word, there cannot be any errors in the Bible. There can't. Yeah. And all the errors made by scribes throughout the centuries as they copied the text of Scripture have been studied, and they've been corrected by the thousands of extant manuscripts of the Bible. Yeah. Now, as verse 5 has to do with the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, uh, verse 6 has to do with the doctrine of the preservation of God's word. Uh, verse 6 says, you shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. Now, if you have uh, one of the other modern translations, uh, they, 
there is a variant in the manuscripts. One says him, the other says them. And uh, what it does is it, uh, in some of these other modern translations, it's saying that God will preserve or protect the needy forever rather than a promise uh, about preserving uh, his word. Uh, there is a, a true variant in the manuscripts. Both are supported uh, and both are true. Now, it all has to do with one word. And uh, one of the copyists uh, didn't copy it correctly. Okay? Now, I'm of the persuasion that it has to do with the preservation of the word uh, because if he was still talking about the needy, that verse would have preceded this one because the antecedent now refers back to the word, okay? the preservation of the Bible. So um, I'll address some of that in the end. Um, how many of you guys have a, a different translation? Yeah. Okay. The funny one is the New American Standard because it has he and them. I thought, well, that's a funny uh, compromise between the two. Uh, but the NIV, the ESV, they make it very clear uh, what, and I, and I think it also has much to do with what the translator's preference is, which one he likes better. So as far as the preservation of God's word, history attests to the truthfulness of that statement. Okay? Uh, David made this claim in 1000 BC, and, uh, and here we are over 3000 years later, and we have the scriptures before us. Okay? James Montgomery Boyce, he quotes uh, Time magazine saying this about the Bible. It says, after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived and is perhaps the better for the siege. Even on the critics' own terms, historical fact, the scriptures seem more acceptable now than when the rationalists began the attack. And then uh, Boyce comments himself saying, God has and will keep and preserve his word. The French atheist Voltaire made these claims openly. He once said, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. He wrote that in 50 years, no one would remember Christianity. But in the year he wrote that, the British Museum paid the Russian government $500,000 for a Bible manuscript, while one of Voltaire's books was selling in the London bookstalls for just eight cents. Voltaire is remembered for being incorrect. The Bible remains and has not been changed the slightest throughout the ages. Now in the context, this is most important to David and to everyone who has ever been oppressed. God's promise to arise and set them safely for which they yearn is a divine guarantee. It's a divine guarantee. If he does not relieve them in this life of their miseries, he will in the next because his word cannot error. Verse 12 very interesting verse. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. They prowl. They prowl. The, the, the prowling kind of nature of sin and Satan is mentioned in other places of the scriptures. There's an example in Genesis 4. Uh, you know the story. Uh, it's Cain and Abel. And Cain has brought an offering to the Lord, or Abel has brought an offering to the Lord from the flock. He brought a blood offering. And Cain brought something from the, the crops, a non-blood offering. And uh, God accepts Abel's, but he does not accept Cain's. And it, it appears that Cain knew better. And then, of course, Cain was jealous of his brother. And um, listen to what the Lord says to Cain. 
think in his great mercy. Verse 6, he says, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. Sin lies at the door. The idea is is that it's, it's crouched like a leopard, like a lion. And its desire is to pounce, to overpower, to overtake you. And here we have the wicked men. They prowl on every side. And it's, they're not just prowling to look sneaky. They're prowling to engage prey. Okay? We've already discovered that from the verses before. They have an agenda. They want to prevail with their lips. They want to overthrow God. They want to establish their own morality okay, apart from him. Yeah. We are inundated with debauchery in our culture from those who prowl. They prowl. But what's new under the sun? And then Peter comments on something similar. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now I read that and I think mostly about my children, okay, who are so, so targeted by our culture. Peter says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It's everywhere, all the time. Satan prowls. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you know how awesome that is that Peter would end that way? He says, I want you to be careful but I also want you to know that God will prevail. He's going to let you suffer, but he's going to use it to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Amen? Yeah. All right. Well, why don't you stand up and we'll pray. I love how David, I guess some people would be rebuked for communicating the way that he does. How dare you say such things and act with such despair? But David shares what he's really feeling in his heart. And then as he, his God seems to draw his attention back to himself, and he says, now hold on, David. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I'm capable of. Don't forget my word. I've got you. Keep looking to me. I'm faithful. I can keep you faithful. I can keep you from stumbling. And, uh, and then Peter, in his thing, he says, watch out. And then he ends with doxology. He ends with praise. And we should do that. Father, we love you. And Lord, all of world history is going to end with doxology. We're going to praise you. We're going to worship you. And I think that when that great worship service is over, that is perhaps the time when we will have forgotten all the miseries that we endured. And all we'll know is the greatness of our God, that righteousness prevails. We'll dwell with you where no wickedness dwells. And um, Lord, we look forward. But until then, Lord, as David pointed us to your word, that it's pure, Lord, we, we need to be more grounded. We need to be better thinkers according to your word. And Lord, as our culture is encroaching upon us, Lord, we need to have your perspective. We need to be grounded. We need to be able to engage and navigate. So I pray that you would increase our conviction regarding the scriptures, Lord, the truth of the gospel and its power to save. Help us not to be only on the defensive day in and day out, but help us to be advancing upon the culture with the gospel so that we might see revival, Lord.
So Lord, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.